This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. When we have a project to do, a work project, something at home, something at school, like most of the time, and I'm going to put a little clarify there, most of the time, like we want to do it well, don't we? We want to do a good job. Last year, for example, my, uh, my boys, they were in fifth grade, and um, the big fifth grade social studies project was a diorama for their study on Native Americans in American history. And, um, but this was more than just a social studies project. Mr. Young, their fifth grade teacher, he, um, he actually wants the parents to work with the kids on this, okay? So a couple years earlier, they did a diorama, no parents, and you could tell Jill and I had nothing to do with our boys' diorama, and you could tell those who parents had everything to do with it. This year, though, in fifth grade, he wants you doing it together. It's, it's like Mr. Young took a, a page out of the family ministry playbook here at Redemption. And Mr. Young, he... Um, he is a notorious grader, especially on this diorama. Like, it, you've heard about Mr. Young's grading in this diorama when you're in, like, first grade. It's so, it's so, it's so I can't even think of the word. He's, uh, apparently, he's only given, like, a couple, like, literally a couple perfect 50-point scores on this in all of his years of teaching. And so we set out as a family on our version of Mission Impossible. We weren't going to get just one, but we were going to get two perfect 50-point scores. We were going to give him the best dioramas he has ever seen to where they are the ones that are talked about for years to come. Ethan, he, uh, Ethan did an igloo from the Arctic, and Sean, he did a teepee from the plains. And we, like, we had a lot of fun working together, didn't we? I mean, looking back on it, it seems like it was fun at least. <laughs> And we spent time watching YouTube videos on what others had done. We made multiple trips to the hobby store like every day, buying, returning, buying, returning. We were trying different techniques of making igloo blocks for that. We were making sure that everything looked authentic and especially that everything was to scale, right? We read the rubric. We knew how important scale was to Mr. Young. And like, I, remember, I remember that day dropping you guys off at school that day. And they, they, they got out and they're like, oh my gosh, be so careful with that thing. And uh, I really thought when we dropped them off, I thought we had it. I thought we had two unicorns, two perfect 50-point scores. Narrator, they in fact did not. <laughs> Mr. Young's reputation was well earned. Instead of two perfect 50s, we received two 49s. He'll just go home. Amen. <laughs> he, uh, he dinged Ethan's, uh, he dinged Ethan's um, diorama of a barren Arctic landscape for, wait for it, being too barren. Like, what, what else are we supposed to put on there? Look at the puppies, how cute they are. And the one's like, hey, Dad, Dad, there's a polar bear coming. You should hurry. Sean, he, um, he got dinged on his because uh, the sticks that hold up the teepee, they weren't weathered enough. They didn't look authentic. <laughs> Here's the worst part. Jill and I talked about taking those sticks out back in the yard and rolling them in dirt, and we didn't. <laughs> but, uh, man, that poor buffalo don't know what's coming, does he? But uh, here's the thing. When you're, when you're given a project to do, though, like you want to... You want to do it well. It was fun doing this together as a family. And the, and the thing is, we, we didn't do what Jill and I would have done in college. We didn't wait till the night before it was due. No, we set out right away, and we spent the entire semester giving it time. 
I think some of that is true of the Christian life, isn't it? Of our spiritual formation, of our faithfully following the way of Jesus, of this journey that we've undertaken together. One, that I think we all want to do well and finish well. But like, how do we do that? With so many possible detours and, and potential wrong turns along the way, how do we remain faithful? How do we keep moving in the right direction, headed toward the right destination? How do we ultimately finish well? Well, that's the question that Paul is going to answer in this morning's passage here in, in 1 Corinthians 9 as we wrap up our series on the fruit of the Spirit, looking at the fruit of self-control this morning. And in this, this passage, Paul, he, um, he uses a pair of athletic metaphors, that of a, a runner and, and that of a, a boxer, to illustrate the, the what, the how, and the why of Christian living, of remaining faithful and finishing well. And so let's take a look at this, uh, this passage real quick. Look down here with me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, he says, Do you, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And so run that you may receive it, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul here, he's writing to the churches uh, in, throughout the Greek city of Corinth. And Corinth was home to the uh, Isthmian Games. It was uh, similar to the, the Olympic Games. Games that may very well have taken place during Paul's 18-month stay in Corinth in his second missionary journey. The story that we read in Acts 18, given that these games, uh, unlike the Olympic Games that took place every four, these took place every other year. And at these games, there were essentially two groups of people there. There were the spectators who sat in their seats and watched and there were athletes who competed. And so what, what Paul's effectively asking them is, do you not know that at the games held in the Colosseum, that all the spectators, they sit and watch, whereas all the athletes actively participate in the games? And you, you can easily tell. It's, it's obvious who's who, right? The athlete is in the game, and the spectator is just watching the game. But even within the athletes, the while many athletes are competing, he says that only a very select few will be victorious, will receive a prize, this wreath that was placed on their head like a crown. And for the, uh, the Isthmian Games, it was made out of wild celery and pine branches uh, in honor of, of Poseidon, the, the Greek god of the sea. Those were plants that were deemed sacred to him. Uh, I don't know if wild celery and pine branches grow in the sea where he lived or not, how they came to be, but that's what they made it out of. And it's kind of like our Olympic Games, right? Think about a, a few years ago, uh, at the 2016 Summer Games in Rio, over 11,000 athletes competed, the most that had ever competed in an Olympic Games. However, of those 11,000, there were only 306 individual and team gold medals awarded. Now, I'm sure that some competing, competed that they, knowing they stood next to no chance of winning a gold medal. Like, they, they were just happy to be there. They got the invitation, and so they went. Kind of like the, uh, the Jamaican bobsled team in the 98 Winter Games, okay? They're just like, we're glad to be here. That said, I'd venture to guess every athlete stepped off that plane 
ready to compete, having trained hard, ready to, to give it their all, whatever that was. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. And I think Paul, he's calling us as followers of Jesus to like, to get up. Let's do, let's do it real quick. Everybody get up for a second. We need a little stretch in the middle. I promise this wasn't in my notes. I was just like, we need to get up for a second. We need to get up and we need to get going. And now you can sit back down. But he's calling us to run. He's calling us to run a race. And he's calling us to run well, one foot in front of the other. And to run in in the right way, in faithful pursuit of Jesus. And to run in such a way that we not only finish the journey, but that we finish well. Receiving the prize that awaits us at the finish line as Jesus crowns us, not with a perishable wreath, not with with celery and pine needles that are just going to dry out like a Christmas tree, but, but an imperishable wreath. A crown of righteousness, Paul calls it, as he writes to Timothy. A crown that he knew was laid up for him as he neared his own finish line at the end of his life, writing to Timothy a second time from a prison cell awaiting his own execution. A crown that he says Jesus, the righteous judge, would award not only Paul for his faithfulness, but for all who have loved his appearing again, his return, faithfully living in this life in hope of his promised return and our resurrection that awaits us in the life to come. And that's encouraging to run one foot in front of the other. And yet this explicit encouragement contains, uh, I think, an implicit warning. Because see, far too often I think we more resemble the spectators in the stands rather than the athletes on the field. Sometimes we find ourselves sitting rather than running watching others pursue a prize rather than pursuing it ourselves. And I think there's kind of four basic reasons for this. And number one, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but I think it's ignorance. I think we just don't know. I think some, some of us, we, we had that point in our life where like, you raised your hand in service, right? The pastor did the thing where he's like, everybody bow, everybody lower your heads, close your eyes, raise your hand, I see you in the back. And like, there wasn't nobody raising their hand that Sunday. Some of y'all raised your hand. Some of y'all answered an altar call for the 400th time in your life, maybe. Uh, maybe you said a prayer when you were a kid. You got, you got baptized, even. And, and when you got baptized, what you found is you reached that destination that everyone had been pushing so aggressively towards, and then they kind of left you. And you were made to believe that baptism was the finish line, that that's all there was. Truth is, you were, you were sold short. You were told a lie. And there's so, so much more. And so if that's you, what I want you to hear is that, like, praise Jesus for taking your first step. Amen? Praise Jesus for taking your first step in this lifelong journey of faithfully following the way of Jesus. Each step bringing you more joy, more growth, more fullness, more intimacy, each step bringing you closer and closer to Jesus. The second reason, though, I think, is, is we find ourselves on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, instead of ignorance, I think it's, it's self-righteousness. In thinking, I've arrived. Uh, I ran my race, and now I am retired from running. And I'm going to sit, and I'm going to watch. 
You know, it's like, that's like running the first 26 miles of a marathon and then stopping to watch everybody else finish that last 0.2 miles. And what happens a lot of time is when we sit down and watch, we end up criticizing the way everybody else is running, aren't we? Now, hear me. Um, this has nothing to do with age. I think we can be incredibly young and think we have arrived. And we're just going to sit there and we're going to tell everyone else how to do it. And so what I hope you hear this morning is this. Um, there's still more race to be run. None of us are there yet. None of in this room, including me, none of us are there yet. None of us have arrived. And we won't until we take that final breath. Right? There is no prize, to use Paul's words here, for running 26 miles. There's no t-shirt, and you certainly aren't getting the 26.2 bumper sticker. But also, please hear that what we need more than your criticism of the method that we use of pursuing Jesus is your model of faithfully following Jesus, those first 26 miles. We need your prayers, we need your presence, we need your encouragement, and we need your involvement in finishing the race. Third reason, I think we're going to start to pick up more people in this third one. The third one is fear. You, you were running well. You were going, and then, but now you feel stuck. You feel stuck in the mud. You feel lost in the woods, and you're not sure where to turn. You're not sure what to do. You're not sure who to trust. And what I hope you hear this morning is I hope you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd calling out to you. No matter how far you strayed or how long you've been away, no matter how often or how much you have failed, He's calling you back to him to take that next step toward him. And if the first three didn't connect with you, I'm pretty sure this last one will. And the fourth reason is just flat out exhaustion. And all God's people said in one tired voice, amen. You've been running so hard for so long, you're just tired. You need a break. You need to sit down, catch your breath. Full disclosure, that's where I'm at. I just need to sit down and take a break. And I know many of you do too. Not a break from Jesus, just to clarify. We ain't breaking from worshiping Jesus. But we need to take a break. And we're running on fumes and we're out of gas. The wick is short. You're snapping at everybody. And if it's not you, it's at least me. And I don't like that me. And so what I hope we hear, what I hope I hear, what I hope you hear, it, we, we need to slow down, don't we? We need to slow down a little bit, and we need to find a more sustainable pace that we can maintain for the long haul, knowing, as N.T. Wright once said, it is only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up to God. Sometimes we got to slow down to go faster. And practically what that means for us, it means that there's some things in our life that need to go. It means that we need to learn to say no so that we can say yes to Jesus, amen? But how we do this, the what's really great, but we really the how's where the meat is, isn't it? How do we get back up? How do we get back in the game? How do we find a slower, more sustainable pace that'll enable us to finish well? Thankfully, Paul shows us. Isn't that, how, isn't that neat how this works? He gives us two things. First, how is self-control. Everybody's favorite word. Actually, no, the next word is going to be even more favorite. First one, self-control. Look at verse 25. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. That's not right. This is what happens when we don't wear your cheater glasses. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. 
And he's referring here to the very strict 10-month training regimen that athletes went through in preparation for the games, uh, pursuing those things that they believed uh, would best condition their body and refraining from those things that they believed would be harmful, that would hinder their, their growth and their progress. And what Paul's doing is he's applying this mindset to the Christian life <coughs> of, of exercising self-control in our walk with Jesus, knowing that faithfully following the way of Jesus includes obedience to the words of Jesus. Right? Knowing that, that God is creator, he, he knows what is best for us. He wants what is best for us, his creation. And rather than leave us guessing at what that is and to figure it out our own, he has shown us, he has shown it to us through the living word of his son, Jesus Christ. He has revealed it to us through the, the written word of scripture. We don't need to guess what it is that God wants for us. We don't need to guess God's will. It's right here on these pages. To self-control, the way Paul's referring to it here, it's living the way God created us to live, the way he intended for us to live, the way he designed us to live. It is refraining from those things that God has deemed harmful to us, not because he's mean or controlling, but because he loves us. He has deemed these harmful for us. And pursuing these things, God has deemed helpful and healthy for us. I think there's another implied aspect of self-control that comes uh, from the broader context that this passage is within, right? We don't just take the passage out of its context. We've got to read it within its context. And it sits within this broader passage of chapters 8 through 10, I think my favorite in this whole letter. And, and in this broader section, Paul, he wants us to see that the way we live inherently impacts others. The way we think, the way we speak, our choices, our actions. And so he's calling us, his followers of Jesus, to live for the good of others the good of all others. We, we see that here. We, we, we saw that as we finished Galatians. Not causing those who struggle to stumble, even those who struggle with things other than you, even those who struggle with things you just can't understand why they struggle. We don't tell them to get over it. We help them. And that means if the way that we live if exercising our rights and living out our freedoms is in any way detrimental to others or harmful to others, we are to voluntarily, as followers of Jesus, forego our rights and lay down our freedoms and do it for their good. Living in a way that promotes their well-being. That is the way of Jesus. Amen? That is loving your neighbor as yourself. And that means if, if there's something that we could do, if something we could do negatively impacts others, then it's something we should not do. And can we be honest, like that requires a whole heap of self-control, doesn't it? Now, I can do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. They just need to figure themselves out. The reason, though, the reason we are to do this, Peter, he, he talks about this as he opens his second letter. He says, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with, can you guess what the next word is? You guys read it, didn't you? Good job. Self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours, this fruit of the Spirit is yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here is that self-control, it is rooted in love and it requires knowledge and understanding, doesn't it? Right? It is rooted in love and requires knowledge of understanding. It requires knowledge of what it is that God desires of us. Right, Seeking to understand his word and his will, rooted in a desire to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. But not just that, it requires knowledge of what others need of us. Seeking to understand their story and their struggle, rooted in a desire to love our neighbor as ourselves, as though we were the ones suffering, as though we were the ones struggling, as though we were the ones in need of help. And here's the kicker, though. None of us in this room are capable of doing that on our own. Under your own power, it is impossible. Because see, self-control, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, is a fruit of God's Spirit dwelling in us. Character traits the Spirit is forming in us. Qualities that are increasing in us, to use Peter's words. And so just as a trainer and a nutritionist, they, they guide this athlete in understanding what's best for their body, enabling them to compete at the highest level, keeping their body from getting hurt, the Holy Spirit gives us an understanding of what God desires of us, enabling us to live that out in our lives and keeping us from getting hurt and from hurting others, of becoming ineffective or unfruitful, as Peter says in our pursuit of Jesus. Right? Self-control is rooted in love, love of God, love of others, and requires knowledge and understanding. That's the first how. Here's the second how of finishing well and remaining faithful, and it's discipline. Right? Discipline. Read verses 26, 27 with me. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And he's continuing this metaphor, uh, describing two undisciplined athletes. One is a runner who, uh, who's, he's got no destination in mind as they run. They're just going out for a run. They're running aimlessly, he says. They're just, they're just going to wing it. And like, that's fine for that Saturday morning jog where you're like, I'm really proud of myself just for putting my running shoes on and taking one step out the door. So wherever I go and how far I go, it doesn't really matter. And uh, like, maybe, you know what? I'm going to make my way down to Bussy Woods. I'm going to go say hi to the elk, you know? Maybe nobody's going to say hi to them. I want to see if they actually live there or not. There were days where I was like, it's called Elk Grove because there's elk that live there, but there's no elk that live there. I've seen the elk. Maybe he's going to go circle the lake, you know, wave at the ducks. Maybe grab a bubble tea on the way back. And that's fine for just going out for a Saturday morning jog, but that's not okay for the serious athlete. The, the runner who is running a race, who is intent on winning the race, where you need to run a specified path. Otherwise, you're not only going to get lost in Bussy Woods, but you're going to be disqualified from the race. That's the one the other athlete he describes as a boxer. One who just kind of trains with no purpose. I'm imagining myself in a boxing gym, is what Paul's describing right here. And... Uh, you just, uh, you're shadow boxing, you're just beating the air. You're like, you know what, the, the, what's the little thing, the, the speed bag? Is it speed bag? Does that work? We'll go with it. You know what I'm talking about at least, right? Somebody, somebody's over there, somebody's going to go over here, and it's going to, or uh, the, the, big, the big bag, you know, Captain America like kicked that off into the other room, and so I'm just going to you know, do this, and uh, there's, no, there's no purpose to it. 
right? Let's be honest. If I go into a boxing gym, I promise you I have no intent of ever stepping into the ring. There is no purpose of me even showing up. Don't even let me in the door. It's just for show. It's just probably so I can come back and say, so the other day I was at a boxing gym, and uh, man, this ain't a game for Paul. This isn't just for show. Paul had no intention of being disqualified from his mission that he was sent on from Jesus. He wasn't ever going to be accused of not practicing what he preached because he was transformed by the very gospel that he preached. He was, he was transformed by the love of the Savior that he was pointing people to. And so rather than running aimlessly without any sex of direction, rather than just beating the air without any sense of purpose, what Paul's calling us to is to remain disciplined in our lives, training with purpose, running on a designated path in pursuit of a desired destination, and that destination is intimacy with Jesus. And so for us, let's think of it like this. What, what spiritual discipline for us looks like is, is pursuing spiritual formation, pursuing our relationship with Jesus through the spiritual practices. And like the word spiritual is up there, not just so it lines up nice and pretty on the left of the slide. It's to remind us that all of this is through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. None of this is on our own. But we need to be disciplined. We are, by nature, creatures of habit, aren't we? Uh, if you don't know it, if we were to watch you, we could pick up on your habits. And we're formed by our habits. We're shaped by them. Even the, the mundane, everyday habits that you don't even think about, right? We are being formed every moment of every day that we live out our ordinary, everyday lives. Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest, she writes in her book, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which is an incredible book, by the way. It's the one with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the cover. She says, most of our days, and therefore most of our lives, are driven by habit and routine. She didn't say good habits and good routines. She just said habit and routine. We are shaped every day, whether we know it or not, by practices, by rituals and liturgies that make us who we are. Our hearts and our loves are shaped by what we do again and again and again. We are being formed by brushing our teeth and flossing. We are being formed on our drive to work, formed as we eat lunch, formed as we're watching TV. But what we do is far too often we spend our days running aimlessly without any sense of direction, don't we? We're really just hoping to get through the day. We, we're just beating the air without purpose, hoping we just don't get caught. Hope no one notices that we really don't have any idea what we're doing. And so think about your morning routine. We all have some form of morning routine. And I think uh, if we were to take a poll, most of us are probably woken up in one of three buckets. We'll put in a fourth other, but most of us one of three. You're either woken up by a kid or a dog crawling into an already too small bed. Yeah, and I heard that one. We've all been there. We, need like, we all need like, this should be like the, the best wedding present you can get somebody is like not the California king or the Texas king, but like a, what's bigger than that, a Pacific Ocean king. Second reason that we wake up in the morning is our bladder. <laughs> Told you I'd get about all of you here. And if those two don't get you, your alarm wakes you up and your alarm anymore, it's probably on your phone. And so if you don't have a dog licking your face or a kid licking your face, you're probably woken up with a phone in your face. And uh, I read a tweet the other day. They were saying, 
Uh, there's two groups of people in the world. There are those who look at your phone before you go to the bathroom, and there are those who look at your phone as you go to the bathroom. And we probably fit into one of those. But that's our morning liturgy. Our morning liturgy, it begins with this hit of dopamine, this digital sugar rush, right? Looking at our notifications, swiping an app. And like what that does is it begins your day with frustration over that email that came through overnight, anxiety over whatever the latest culture war on Twitter you're fighting in is, envy over that home remodeling video that you saw on TikTok, and you're like, I could never do that if I tried. It starts your day with FOMO, Fear of missing out on last night's party that you either didn't go to or didn't even get invited to. There's a little bit of rage monster in you from that article your mom sent you from Facebook. And so what do you do? You pull up a game. I play Sudoku. But we do the same thing in the evening. Our evening liturgy, our morning liturgy begins with scrolling on our phone and our evening liturgy ends with scrolling on Netflix, doesn't it? And so think about not just your morning and evening, but your entire, the liturgy of your whole day. And ask yourself, how how do your habits and routines of your morning and evening liturgy, how are they forming you? What are they forming you into? And I, I didn't ask if they're forming you, but how are they forming you? Because, see, we are always being formed into the image of someone or something. The only question is who or what. And that someone is who you spend your time with, who it is that you are listening to, and that something is what you fill your time with, what it is that you are participating in. And my fear is that, is that even as followers of Jesus, we are being shaped far more by Fox News and CNN, by Twitter and Facebook, than we are by God's Word and God's Spirit. Amen? We can do that one a little quiet one under our breath. It's okay. Can we just think about the time that we spend on those things? And I'm not saying they're bad things. Hear me. Think about the time we spend doom scrolling, watching the news that we don't want to watch. And think about the itty bitty time that we spent with God before we went to bed. Which do you think is forming us more? I think there's a reason we're so angry. And so I want to imagine a different world, a fresh start tomorrow morning. Imagine how different your day would be if we began our day with just a few moments of silence with God and coffee. God's okay with that. Coffee is a good gift from God. Just a few moments of silence with God. I'm not talking like you got to spend four hours there. But what if you just, hey. Morning, God. How you doing? You were up all night. I wasn't. Thanks for letting me sleep. You had a busy day today. You know that. I'm kind of anxious about this thing. I got a meeting today. Not looking forward to it. A few moments of silence with God, allowing him to speak. Allowing him to just speak in the silence. Allowing you to just sit in the silence. There's this one of the books that we're reading in the way, um, Rich Velotis, he tells this incredible story of, of Mother Teresa. Y'all know who Mother Teresa is? Okay. If not, really cool nun. <laughs> and she's telling this story. She's getting interviewed for, I don't know if it's a magazine or something. And the guy's asking her, it's like, what is silence like for you? And she's like, well, I just, I just sit there in silence with God. I just sit 
and I listen. And he's like, oh, that's kind of cool. I never thought of that. And he's like, so then, so then what does God say as you sit and listen? And she goes, nothing. He just sits and listens. And then she says what only like probably like a 95-year-old nun can get away with saying. She's like, I can't make it any more plain for you. If you don't understand, I don't know what to tell. I, don't, I, can't, I can't help you. And I remember I was reading that in the backyard last summer. And, and in that moment, I was, I was sitting in this Adirondack chair. I can picture it like it was yesterday. And um, I was like, I don't know, we're from other trees, so let's give it a try. And I just, I sat in the Adirondack chair and uh, closed my eyes. And it was, like a, it was like a day like today. It was just beautiful. And um, this is where, if you're uncomfortable with like really um, vivid images of God, you're going to get a little squeamish, and I don't care. Um, I felt him pull a chair over next to me on my left. And we were sitting next to each other. And it was just like she said. Neither one of us were talking. We were just listening. Listen to the birds, the airplanes, the cars. But I could feel his presence. And then a few moments later, what felt like an hour, and it was probably like five seconds, I felt an arm, a hand on my shoulder. And I just sat there, and we kept listening. And then I felt a hand resting on mine and grabbing it. And the next thing I know is like my shirt is soaked because I'm just crying. I've never experienced anything like it. I've never experienced anything like it since. But like when we talk about being disciplined and spiritual discipline, we're talking about things like this, things like silence and solitude, things like Sabbath and generosity and fasting. That, and we're not doing it to earn God's love. We're doing it to be with God. It's about being rather than doing. Does that make sense? We're not doing it so that. We're just, we just want to hang out. Think about your best friend. You just, want, you just want to hang out. We get to just hang out with God sometimes, each and every one of us. Imagine how our day would be different if we began our day by allowing God to speak to us through his word rather than the world screaming at us through our phone. Imagine how that would shape our hearts and our lives, being reminded that we are known and loved by the creator of the universe and ending our day reflecting on his presence throughout our life, throughout our day. And hear me, some of you in this room are like, yeah, that's just not happening in my house. I got a six-year-old doing a cannonball into the bed. I got a three-year-old screaming for breakfast in the morning, and the baby needs his diaper changed. I get it. But even there, in the midst of that, in the chaotic liturgy of your family waking up, and in the exhausting liturgy of bedtime, your entire family is being shaped by your habits and formed by your routines, by what you do and how you do what you do. And so in everything that we do, our greatest desire should always be that the Spirit would be forming us into the image of the Son. Amen? That we would be growing to be more and more like Jesus. Robert Mulholland, he says in his book, Invitation to a Journey, he says this this journey toward, toward wholeness in the image of Christ for the sake of others, he adds, it progresses by means of the spiritual disciplines. And he refers to the disciplines as, as scaffolding within which the reconstruction of our life toward wholeness takes place. It it is like a a trellis that the vine grows up so it can become healthier, bearing more fruit. But none of this, none of this is possible on our own. He goes on to say that spiritual formation is not something we do to ourselves for ourselves, but something we allow God to do in us and for us as we yield ourselves to the work of God's transforming grace. 
a means of God's grace to shape us in the image of Christ for others. It is trusting in the Spirit's power. It is relying on His strength. It is yielding to His leading. And that can be a little scary at times. We are, as Brother Lawrence puts it, we are as a stone before a carver, a big slab of marble, whereof He is to make a statue. Presenting myself thus before God, I desire Him to form His perfect image in my soul and make me entirely like Himself. We are, we are clay in the potter's hands. And so rather than running aimlessly without direction, rather than beating the air without purpose just for show, we seek to discipline our lives, pursuing spiritual formation through spiritual practices. And that is, that is the very reason that we began what we call the way this year. The way uh, is a three-year journey of spiritual growth and formation. And we began this with a very specific purpose uh, of seeking to more faithfully follow the way of Jesus and doing that together. And we began it by heading toward a very specific destination, and that is pursuing greater faith and deeper intimacy with Jesus. And we do that uh, through reading. The, every, the authors that I have just described, that is all reading that we've done in the way. Uh, by reflecting on what it is that we have read, by sharing what it is that we have read, by experimenting with a variety of spiritual disciplines. Last session, we, we began the, um, uh, the contemplative prayer of self-examination at the end of our day called Examine that we've talked about a few times here on Sunday morning. Uh, this, this week, in our next session, we're going to begin to incorporate Sabbath, this weekly resting and delighting in God. And a little plug, like we're going to start another new journey in January, and I would love to invite you to consider joining us on that new journey. And we're going to hold an information session later, uh, later this fall um, if you want to come and hear more about this. But also, like, if you're like, I want that, just come find me. Let's talk. But in all of this, with all of this how, let's not forget the Why? Let's not forget the reason that we run this race. Let's not forget the reason that we are trying to live in faithful obedience to Jesus. And so as Paul says, like to be real blunt, it's to receive the prize that awaits us when we cross the finish line at the end of this journey of life. Not in pursuit of a perishable wreath. Not a, not a perishable wreath of the world seeking things like security and comfort and, and control. Things that are, if we're honest, they're nothing more than a mirage. They're things that just, they vanish the closer we get to them things that we find as we enter the wide gate uh, that leads down an easy path that leads in the wrong way to your disqualification from the race. But no, we follow Jesus. We follow the risen Lord and we follow him through the narrow gate down a way that is hard. There is no bait and switch here. But it is the only way that leads to life. Life that begins with that first step of the journey and continues with every step, faithfully following the way of Jesus in pursuit of that imperishable wreath, that crown of righteousness given to us by Jesus himself upon his return and his appearing again. Not given to us as a result of our own work, but faith in Christ's perfect worth, his, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, his glorious ascension as we await his promised return. When our tired, weary, worn out, disease-ridden bodies will be resurrected and glorified 
when this broken and fallen world filled with violence will be restored and renewed. A new heaven and a new earth where we will worship in the very presence of the one we spend our entire lives pursuing, the one in whose image we are being formed. Every step of this journey, every step of our lives is taken with purpose and toward that destination in hope that promise. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.